Kia and welcome to the New Zealand Medical Students Association Focus Podcast. Over the course of August, we're interviewing New Zealand Members of Parliament to inform you medical students about who your vote would be best given to. This week, we've been speaking to Julianne Genter from the Green Party. The Green Party of Aotearoa New Zealand was founded in 1990, but was initially part of the Alliance Party, a conglomerate of smaller left-wing parties that worked together to win electoral seats. They stood alone in 1999 and became independent, and have ever since then have been represented in Parliament. They initially won 6% of the vote in 1999, and their vote numbers have risen to around 11% in recent elections. They are a left-leaning party with core principles of environmental responsibility and reducing poverty. Here's my chat with Julianne. This is Mike Peebles, and I'm sitting here with Julianne Genter, the health, spokes, the health spokesperson for the Green Party, um, and also um, recently labelled as New Zealand's foremost transport economist. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. My Julianne. pleasure. Yeah. Um, I suppose to start off with, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your party, um, your portfolio, and what you're doing in you know, Bowen House in Wellington? Well, I'm originally from the United States, and never would have imagined myself as a politician. Mm. Although I was really passionate about political issues when I was a teenager in the States, it never seemed to be the way to make a positive difference. Mm. And I, I'm sad to say that I was I was quite jaded, if you will, or mm. skeptical about what we could achieve through the political system. And mm. I, I guess over time I became a lot more optimistic about what could be achieved. And particularly after moving to New Zealand over a decade ago, I came to work as an urban and transport planner, and I did a lot of really fantastic and interesting research with a lot of pe- different talented people, engineers, economists, Mm. and we provided advice to the government of the day. First it was Labour, then National. Mm. And none of our ideas were picked up at all. Mm. And (laughs) so I started to think that maybe if we really wanted to see evidence-based policy Mm. implemented, we needed to have champions for it from within political parties. Mm. And certainly the Green Party had the most evidence-based and values-based policies of any of the political parties Mm. I looked at. Mm. So I joined the Green Party to be a volunteer, and one thing led to another. I was elected to Parliament in 2011, Mm -hmm. and I'm currently the spokesperson for Health, Sport and Recreation, ACC, Mm. Transport, Auckland Issues, Youth, and Associate Finance. Quite a broad portfolio there. How do you keep on top of it all? I have to say that since I've taken on health, it does feel like I have more than one person's full workload mm. as a politician. It feels like I'm sort of doing the job I did before when I was transport mm. and finance and youth, um, and also doing the job that Kevin Haig, my predecessor, did as yeah. uh, our health spokesperson. But it is <clears throat> a real privilege because I get a lot of resources, a lot of support and help, and I get to learn new things all the time mm. and meet interesting people and advocate for what I really believe in. Mm. So I think that's a huge privilege. Yeah. And just before we dive into perhaps the Green Party yourself, um, itself, um, I suppose it must be quite interesting having come from the United States political context into New Zealand, which I imagine are fairly different. Yeah, absolutely. And we're so lucky in New Zealand to have MMP, which means we get proportional representation. 
when I was young in the U.S., I couldn't see my values and my ideals represented by either of the two major political parties. Mm-hmm. When I got to New Zealand and discovered the Green Party was in Parliament and heard the co-leaders, Russell Norman and Jeanette Fitzsimons, I thought this is the first time I've heard politicians articulate my values and a really intelligent, evidence-based, mm-hmm. logical way of solving some of the greatest challenges of our time. Mm-hmm. And that really motivated me to become a member of the Greens. That makes sense. And eventually to stand as a candidate, to be mm-hmm. a spokesperson, because I was really surprised that the Greens didn't have a higher level of support. When I first got here, they were on 5%. Mm-hmm. This was 2006. Mm-hmm. And from what I could tell, everything they were advocating was right in line with best practice policy that was being implemented mm. by big mainstream parties in Europe. Mm. And their values seemed to align best with the values of New Zealanders. Mm. And so that's when I guess I felt like I had I had to speak up for it and do my best to help more New Zealanders understand what the Greens are on about, what we stand for, mm. and how we intend to achieve what we're working towards. Because mm. I suppose the Greens have probably changed a lot over those, you know, the last decade or 20 years or so um, I suppose they used to have quite the reputation of being quite a nutty party, would it be fair to say that? Certainly it's fair to say there was that reputation Mm. Uh, I question whether that was a valid criticism because Mm. Mm. if you look back it's actually the the Greens have not become more mainstream, it's the mainstream has become more green, Mm. I mean the Greens were right about climate change Mm. we were right about drug law reform and cannabis we were right about public transport in Auckland. Mm-hmm. Um, we were right about the TPPA. I mean, like, these are all big issues that the Greens had been raising uh, way before they became mainstream. Mm. And, I, and I think, you know, the main, yeah, the mainstream's caught up. Mm. And so I do think that the Greens are the political force of the future, of the 21st century, absolutely. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so, speaking more about the Greens, what do you feel the Green Party stands for? Ecological limits, living within the means of the planet, looking mm. after our natural resources, because mm. we depend on them and we mm. need them to live the lives we live. Mm-hmm. And ensuring that there's social responsibility, that we're looking after the most vulnerable people in our society. Mm. We all do better when we look after those who are the least well-off. Mm. Nonviolence is a really important principle of the Green Party mm. and democracy, um, mm. making sure that decisions are made at the lowest level at which people are affected. Mm-hmm. So those four principles, ecological sustainability, social responsibility, mm-hmm. um, nonviolence, and appropriate decision-making are the four charter principles that all Green Parties globally sign up to. Mm-hmm. And our policy flows from that. And of course, in Aotearoa, we have a preamble to our charter which recognizes Titiriti as the founding document mm-hmm. of Aotearoa. That makes sense. You say um, in Aotearoa, is the Green Party principle is quite similar internationally with Green Parties? Yep, there is a Green, this is a global <coughs> movement. And we participate in global conferences, global Greens conferences, regional conferences, Asia mm-hmm. Pacific Greens. And in order to be call yourself a Green Party, you have to sign up to those charter principles. I see. Oh, very interesting. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I suppose I'd like to just chat about a few of the myths of the Green Party. I'm 
been chatting about to all the parties that I've spoken to so far about some of these myths, but I suppose there's that reputation that the Greens will somehow be irresponsible in government and spend money poorly. Um, what do you say to that criticism? I think it could, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, certainly where Green parties have gotten into government, mm-hmm. and for example, in the state of Baden-Württemberg in Germany, there's been a Green prime minister who was in for five years and then re-elected, and the mm-hmm. Greens got more votes than any other party. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been very fiscally responsible. I mean, mm-hmm. it's one of our key charter principles is recognizing mm-hmm. our limits and living within our means. Mm-hmm. Uh, This is an excuse and a label that's been pushed from the National Party and the right. The idea that you can't afford to look after the environment and have a functioning economy. Mm. And it's it's a bit silly. I was talking to Business New Zealand not that long ago, and I made the point that the economy is made up of people Mm. and natural resources. Mm. It's people's time, energy, labor, ideas, and natural resources. That's all the economy is. Mm. If we don't look after those two things, Mm. we don't have an economy. Mm. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I suppose you mentioned just then that you speak to Business New Zealand, and I feel like in the last perhaps five years, the Green Party has become a party that is seen to be talking a lot more with the business community. Does that dilute the Greens' values at all? I don't think so. I think it's really important that we bring everyone on side. We have a responsibility in a democracy to persuade people that this is that our ideas are the best and that they should support us. And so I think there's a really important role for all political parties to talk to all types of people. I think the problem in New Zealand has been that the National Party seems to mainly talk to big business Mm. and nobody else. Mm. Um, We certainly aren't restricting our conversations to big business. Mm. And I'd say it's less that we are being lobbied by them and more that we're explaining to them what our vision is and how we intend to achieve it. So you're going to business and always saying what you would do to them and trying to tell them why that's a good thing rather than them coming to you and asking you guys why that's telling you guys why that's a good thing. Well, I yeah, and in this particular meeting, it was a big group of major company stakeholders. I made the case that in order to solve the different challenges that we're facing, we actually need the people who've done the best. Mm-hmm. You know, the top ten percent of income earners or wealth owners and the major corporates to recognize that they've done very well and it's time to look after those who haven't. Mm. And there's no point trying to delay progress on climate change and the Mm. transition. The sooner we start transitioning to a low-carbon economy, the less disruptive and costly it's going to be. And so there's this breakdown in faith in democracy in countries like the U.S. and the U.K., and we can see that's resulted in some really anonymous, uh, anomalous... um, election results, like mm. like Trump being elected. And I think the reason for this is because there's been too much of a link between big business and government. There's a perception that the elected representatives aren't actually governing in the interests of all the people of the country, mm. but just those who have the most money and power. Mm. And it's actually now incumbent on those people with money and power to say, uh, we're, we're going to work together. We're mm. going to work together for the good of all of us because otherwise we're going to see the disintegration of society. Mm. Which would be a terrible thing. <laughs> well, it's not going to be good for them in the, yeah. in the medium to long term. Absolutely. That makes sense. Um, I suppose, um, just talking about the upcoming election a bit more, um, 
what does Green? What does the Green Party look like in government? What if say the Greens and the left more generally does well? What does that governing block look like? I think, uh, you know, we have signed up to this MOU with the Labour Party and we've, we're committed to changing the government because this national government has simply treaded water for too long and kind of taken us backwards in a lot of areas mm. on um, reducing poverty. They've taken us backwards. I mean, we've got record levels levels of homelessness now in New Zealand. And there, there was virtually no homelessness when I moved here over mm. a decade ago. They've taken us backwards on climate change, on rivers, protecting our waterways. I mean, their whole economic development strategy is basically based on short-term destruction of the environment. Um, So we're working with Labour. And certainly, since Labour's been in opposition, their policies and rhetoric have come much closer to the Greens. Mm. Um, I would like to see a very strong Green Party at the heart of a progressive government. Mm. The more party votes the Green Party can get, the more influential we will be with our mm. policy priorities and our direction. Mm. And I think that anyone who really wants to see a progressive change in direction would be their best bet is to give a party vote to the mm. Greens. Um, do we want to have ministers? Yes. Just for the sake of it, to have ministerial cars? Mm. No. <laughs> I mean, some... Ministerial positions can be very powerful ways of implementing policy and setting direction. And that Mm. would be why the Green Party is interested in certain ministerial positions. Mm. We're also interested in a range of policy gains across the board, Mm. environmental, social, economic, Mm. because you cannot separate those. And, of course, a major priority for us is actually making government more transparent Mm. and more democratic. Makes sense. Okay. I suppose... um, this may be top secret, I might be asking a bit too much, but you talked about wanting certain ministerial positions. Are you allowed to say what of those you are interested in? Well, I can talk, I can speak for myself personally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I've made it pretty clear that I would like to be Minister of Transport. Mm-hmm. I can see some great associate health roles mm. with delegations in drug law reform and public health. Mm. And also just trying to get those connections between... Um, housing, urban form, transport, and health, because I think one of the opportunities is making those government departments less siloed, because Mm -hmm. the truth is that many of the determinants of health Mm -hmm. sit outside the health portfolio, Mm -hmm. and I'd love to get those more connected up. But look, ultimately, this is going to come down to how many votes we get on the day, Mm -hmm. if we're in a position to negotiate and form a government with labor. the negotiations team will be led, you know, by the co-leaders and mm. and, and the, one of the party co-conveners, mm. and there'll be this a big team of uh, party members who are chosen mm. from the party executive and the caucus, mm. and they will be li- liaising and determining what the priorities are. Yeah, and sense. so you know, I'm I'm just one person out of many. Mm. Um, I do think it's it's pretty clear that the party does see transport as a priority and a way to achieve gains both on climate change and mm. improving life for the most vulnerable. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, does that change at all if New Zealand First is involved? Yeah, and who knows what their priorities are going to be. I mean, <laughs> it's a bit random, really. I mean, I, nobody seems to ask them the question of how they're going to pay for their policy ideas. I mm. noticed that um, Winston's been promising to give half of GST back to the regions. Not a bad idea, but he hasn't explained how he's going to pay for the government services that mm. are currently funded by that money, central government services. Mm. Um, 
One thing I would say is that uh, probably New Zealand first transport policy over overlaps pretty well with ours. Mm. So that, that would be a good thing for the Greens because mm. New Zealand first is a big fan of rail and public transport. Mm. That's good at taking us back to the good old days. But uh, certainly there'll be other areas where we mm. diverge wildly from yeah. New Zealand first in labour and not mm. the least in the treatment of immigrants and refugees. Mm. That makes sense. Okay. And I suppose you were talking about getting, trying to get a very strong party vote. So would it be fair to say that an ideal best-case scenario might be if the Greens were the biggest part of the coalition on the left? Well, of course, that's what we're all <laughs> working towards. Mm. Yeah, that would be great. And it's entirely feasible. Um, you know, in Baden-Württemberg, that state in Germany I told you about, um, it's 11 million people. Mm. It's kind of similar to New Zealand in some respects, although mm. they have a much stronger manufacturing base. Mm. The Greens were the third largest party on 11%. But they'd had, they dominated the councils in some of their larger cities in that state. So mm. they'd had Green mayors for years and the Greens had the most seats on the mm. councils. The Greens went from 11% in 2006 to um, 24% in 2011. Mm. And the German Labour Party, Social Democrats, um, fell to 23. So mm. there was a Green Prime Minister um, oh, wow. in the first Labour-Green coalition in that state. Oh, wow. So it's not impossible. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, you, I mean, I, I, I would be happy with us getting 15 or 20%. Mm. Um, I think that we deserve to have a greater share of the vote than we have gotten historically, mm. both in terms of how our values align with New Zealanders, but also the competence and the authenticity of our candidates. Mm, that makes sense. Okay. If there was um, a situation where, say, Labour decided to turn its back to the Greens and shut, have a, try and have a coalition not left but shut the Greens out of government, would there ever be any situation where the Greens might talk across the aisle to the National Party? Um, I, you know, I, I think that's above my pay grade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they have done it before in 2005. Mm. Um, they they cut the Greens out and worked with New Zealand first. Mm. But the Greens were smaller then. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to be possible in yeah. the future. But it's one more reason, I think, if people support Green Party policy, if you want to see Greens in government, the best way to ensure that is to give your party vote for the Greens. In fact, the only way to ensure that is to give your party vote to the Greens. That makes sense. Okay. Um, can we chat a little bit about why um, you think medical students should vote for the Greens? Oh, well, I think medical students, on on balance, are people who care about the future, who want to have a profession that makes the world a better place, that looks after people. And I think the Greens have the most coherent, long-term vision for how we can have a sustainable, thriving Aotearoa well mm -hmm. into the future. Um, our policy priorities are going to lie in the areas of water, which Greenpeace recently put out a report showing that water has massive public health impacts mm. um, and that the intensification of agriculture is having adverse impacts on public health um, through the contamination of our waterways. Mm -hmm. Healthy families is another big priority for us this election and that means addressing issues in housing, both the quality of the stock mm. and the supply so that we have enough affordable, warm, dry houses. They do mm. it overseas, we can do it here, but we need government leadership in that mm. area. And then again, just responsible, transparent government. And um, I think the Greens have a very 
very good policy for students in particular, medical students, because of course we want to get rid of the restrictions on students' ability to access living allowance support, student support. Um, mm. And we want to work towards a fare-free tertiary situation. Mm. And that may sound like pie in the sky, but Germany's just done it. Mm. And I, I don't see why we shouldn't be doing the same. I mean, it's all about priorities. Do you want to invest in the health of your people? <laughs> Do you want to invest in um, education? Mm. Like, that's going to have a far bigger payoff for the country in the long run than Something. throwing that money at oil and gas subsidies or yeah. some international com- expo that we're at. I, I mean, mm. I, I just feel that the current government's ideas about economic development are just so backwards. Mm. They're like, let's build some convention centers and some motorways. Yeah. <laughs> There's just no... But but we're going to clamp down on students and limit mm. how much they can borrow, even when yeah. they're you know, studying for 8, 10, 11 years, you mm. know? And then um, saddle them up with debt so they can't even really get a first start yeah. when they finish their studies. Yeah. That's, it's just looking at it all backwards. Yeah, we can invest in education up front and then have a pro- progressive tax system, which means those who earn the most pay it back. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they pay it back after they've earned the money, yeah. which makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that we're on the cusp of a total paradigm shift in how mm-hmm. we look at uh, government policy and economic policy because the trend since the 80s of trying to reduce government and, you know, privatize some government services um, to kind of individualize the, um, you know, the way in which people access things like education and then pay for it. Mm. It just hasn't worked. It's not working. Absolutely. We've just got horrifically unaffordable housing and um, young people with huge student loans and they're unable to get ahead and mm. um, we have to change policy to put people first mm. not you know the profits of a few companies or the incomes of those who are earning the most who want to reduce their tax contributions mm. that makes sense okay if you don't mind I'd like to dive into a few specific policy things and I sure. appreciate that some of this might be tertiary education policy rather than health yes. specifically. But I suppose the something that NZMSA is quite riled up about at the moment is the ATFTS cap. Um, yeah, yeah. No, we want to get rid of that cap. Mm-hmm. Is that across the board you want to get rid of it for all students or is it one of these situations where it's an exemption for longer degrees? Well, certainly for longer de- degrees, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where it's an absolute no-brainer for mm-hmm. longer degrees. But I... I'd have to check with the tertiary spokesperson, Gareth Hughes, about whether it applies to all students, but we yeah. definitely want to get rid of the cap. It's it's really unfair to those who are doing post-grad. Yeah, that makes sense. And I suppose um, you were talking before about the cost of living for students and um, that sort of nature. So can you explain more about what you'd like to do in that area? Well, um, we wanted to immediately increase student allowance mm-hmm. so that it could actually cover living costs better because mm-hmm. particularly in places like Auckland but I think generally um, it's just not it's not enough mm-hmm. um, there's a lot that government can do in housing and should do in housing that would mm-hmm. mean that students whether they're in Auckland or Otago or elsewhere mm-hmm. um, have access to warm dry affordable places to live while they're studying mm-hmm. because 
how can anyone do well at their studies when they're constantly sick because yeah. they're living in cold, damp houses? Mm. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. And, I mean, there's there's four different... I don't know how much detail you want me to go into on how we solve the housing crisis, but... Jump into it. Okay, <laughs> well, I mean, I would start with fixing the tax system because mm. that's clearly driven part of it is the fact that, you know, we need a capital gains tax on investment property. You should pay tax on the income just mm. like you would for any other income. Um, that would reduce demand... A fair amount, uh, which would mean housing was more affordable. But secondly, we need to have a restriction on foreign investment in real estate. Um, that is driving housing bubbles all across the world mm. at the moment. Um, and most places actually have more restrictions than we do. We have no restrictions. So mm. foreign investors in some country overseas put their money in property here, sell it, make hundreds of thousands of dollars, and pay no tax to our government. Mm. There's no benefit to New Zealanders in this mm. happening, right? Um, thirdly, we need to have better protection for renters. So that is a warrant of fitness um, and minimum standards around adequate heating. Mm. And that that has to, it's going to take some time to retrofit our housing stock. Mm. But um, at least requiring landlords to do this um, will also not only improve the quality of our housing, but mm. it, it will affect housing affordability because it affects demands at both ends. Mm. I mean, I think some landlords let's call them slumlords, <laughs> some slumlords <laughs> will no longer find it so attractive to be landlords if they're required to meet these standards mm. and they have to pay tax on their capital gains. Mm. So they might give up being landlords, which would be of benefit to everyone. Mm. Now, I'm not talking about all landlords here. I'm just talking <laughs> about that small percentage of slumlords who we all know exist, and yes. they tend to prey particularly on poor people and students. Yeah, the young. Um, and then it also affects demand in the sense that when people have secure housing, mm -hmm. there's less demand to buy for your own, yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that, that helps. So, so, you know, you've got some bad landlords selling their property, putting their properties on the market. So there's more for first home buyers, but there's also more families who could say, actually, renting is an okay choice and there's nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. because I'm sure that my kid can keep going to the school um, and I actually have a house that's not full of black mold mm -hmm. <laughs> and they can't just drive up the rent really quickly. Mm. So those so those three things are all about affecting demand mm. um, and, to some extent, the quality of the supply. Mm. And then the fourth thing that government really needed to do um, and okay. still needs to do is get directly involved in building homes. Mm -hmm. And I mean all types of homes. I mm. mean state houses. I mean affordable housing. I mean homes for sale at market rates mm -hmm. where government can use its lower cost of capital and its scale to deliver on wider social and environmental mm -hmm. outcomes, um, whereas private developers are looking to maximize their profit yeah. generally. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that having government involved, one, you just need them to increase the supply of mm -hmm. state and affordable in particular, but they can also compete with the private developers and mm -hmm. actually force them to become more efficient and mm -hmm. drive efficiencies in the construction sector, um, in the supply of you know, the different materials that we use. Um, you know, and this is just what happens in many other countries, so it's not mm. rocket science. We yeah. can definitely do it here in New Zealand, and I do believe that that will make a big difference to students. Unfortunately, it may not make the biggest difference to people who are studying now, No, but uh, <laughs> within five or ten years, I think we can make a really positive difference. I also had healthy housing down, but you've covered that pretty well. Pretty much pretty covered well. that, yeah. yeah, okay. Well, you were talking about um, in housing, um, you know, government having lower, being able to build more affordably, so you'd the Green Party and yourself would reject the idea that government is somehow inefficient with money. 
Oh, I categorically reject that statement. I actually, I can't understand where that idea comes from because there's plenty of examples of the private sector being inefficient and terrible Mm -hmm. with money and execution. I mean, just look at the whole leaky homes debacle. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's nothing inherently good or bad about public or private organizations. We just need to find the right structures and the right regulations to get the best outcomes. And if in the past government hasn't made the best decisions about how to invest in things, and I would be the first to say that government policy and funding on transport has been appalling Mm -hmm. and is the reason why we have these car-dependent towns and cities. Mm -hmm. But let's just fix it. I mean, the answer isn't to privatize. That's not even possible because transport, like many other network or public goods, isn't going to become more efficient if you mm-hmm. have private providers trying to compete with each other. Yeah. Um, so it's just our job to fix it. And there's plenty of examples overseas where the public sector is delivering very efficient outcomes for mm-hmm. public goods like the delivery of housing and transport. Mm-hmm. And we can do that here in New Zealand. That makes sense. The final specific policy I just wanted to ask about is the Waikato Medical School idea. Do you yeah. personally or the Green Party have a position on that? Well, yeah, I mean, my, I'm not an expert on medical schools. Mm. Uh, so I went and talked to people who are, and they've said it doesn't look like we've asked the question in the right way. It's being mm. driven really parochially from from Waikato by a few individuals who are really interested in the idea. And that's probably not the best way to make a decision about a huge capital investment in a new Mm. medical school. Like, it needs to pass a national interest test. Mm. Uh, There aren't currently enough positions for uh, people who are just graduating from Mm. medical school. So we need to increase the opportunities for people as they're graduating before Mm. we think about scaling up opportunities Mm -hmm to have more students. Yes, of course, there are special needs for rural doctors and rural medical needs. And I believe that Otago and Auckland University are already working on that. But I also think that there are opportunities to find new ways of doing that. But Mm -hmm. Hamilton is probably not the best place to be giving people a taste of what it's like to be a rural doctor because Hamilton's one of our larger cities. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to say blanket opposed to it. Yeah. It just se- it doesn't seem like w- the business case has been presented in a way that says, yes, this is definitely solving a problem that mm. we have. They've identified a few problems, but then it looks like it's mainly a solution looking for a problem. Yeah, that makes sense. And and, and the depressing thing is, <laughs> sorry, depressing, yeah, okay. that I've learned over the past 15 years um, throughout my career is that it seems like the policy that gets enacted often isn't done because you've done a rational assessment of what are the best ways to solve a particular problem. Mm. That's, that's what I thought naively in post-grad <laughs> studying economics and political science in Paris, I thought, you know, here's a problem, mm-hmm. training in medical students or climate change or whatever it is, mm-hmm. let's do a rational assessment of which policies will take us in the direction we want to go because we've democratically determined this is our vision. But what actually happens is people just get ideas of things that will benefit them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's vested interests, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, big corporates or... Um, People decide what's going to be good for them, and then they create a campaign around it, and they lobby for it, and politicians just kind of make trade-offs between 
these policies that are being campaigned for by particular groups. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's really important that those of us who are interested in good, sound, evidence-based policy learn how the tools of campaigning Mm -hmm. and learn how to... We can't just expect policymakers to look at the evidence or well we can expect policymakers to we can't expect politicians to um so so we have to get better at campaigning for the things that are actually going to solve our problems yeah and that means using tactics that are really different to what most people who have had long careers in academia would be used to mm, i mean they're used to just publishing in academic journals mm. but guess what politicians never look at the academic journals i mean they're lucky if they you know read a couple of headlines here mm. and there um, so I think we need to get better at translating actual solutions into political issues, which can then get support and get buy-in from politicians. Okay, that makes sense. That's kind of all that I had to ask about, but I was wondering if, seeing as I've got you, the health spokesperson in front of me, whether there's any health policy that you'd like to talk about at all. My big priorities have been public health, Um, And in particular, looking at things like a sugary drinks tax, supporting that um, as one part of a big package to Mm -hmm. reduce the harm that's caused by junk food and junk food companies. Mm. Um, Also, mental health. Mental Mm. health seems to be a really topical issue in New Zealand because it seems like our system just isn't delivering the help that people need and so I've been calling for a nationwide inquiry independent inquiry into mental health so we can get to the bottom of it and I think structurally health and particularly mental health is going to need more money than it currently has but public health and a preventative approach offers an opportunity to reduce some of those hospital costs mm. and the costs of care at the bottom of the cliff if we actually work on investing in prevention up front. And then finally, drug law reform is very close to my heart. I think mm. we should be treating the harms associated with drug use and abuse as a health issue rather mm. than a criminal issue. Take the money out of policing it and Mm. out of imprisoning people and put it into support for overcoming addictions, Mm. support to help those people get back on their feet. And I've had my medicinal cannabis bill drawn from the ballot, which is amazing. It means it'll get a first reading before Mm. Parliament. And the goal there is simply to make it legal for people who are using cannabis for any medicinal purpose under the supervision of uh, a doctor Mm. or a registered medical practitioner Um, yeah, they'd be able to use cannabis. And this is something that has happened in many states in the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been quite, quite successful. I just don't think, I mean, I know there's still a lot of clinical trial research to be done on the benefits of uh, cannabis, the therapeutic applications, Mm -hmm. but there's enough evidence to say that it has very, very low harm, no risk of fatal overdose and Mm -hmm. plenty of anecdotal evidence that people are currently finding it really useful. Mm. And I don't think they should have to wait decades uh, or have to pay thousands of dollars a month for some pharmaceutical product Mm. when it's something that we can grow right here. Mm. Yeah, That makes sense. Wonderful. That's basically everything I wanted to ask about. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I... No, lovely speaking with you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Julianne. You're welcome. It's thoroughly appreciated. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Next week... I'll be talking to David Clark from the Labour Party. But for now, thank you for listening. Kakite.